calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. The Astrea Trilogy Written and read by Seymour Hamilton Book One The Voyage South Chapter Three In which Astrea prepares and the skippers choose their crews. That same evening, Roaring Jack arrived at Alanna's cottage not long after supper. The cottage grew smaller as he entered, its cramped space reduced by the skipper's heavy-set body and filled by his booming voice. "'Straya, I need to speak to your mother. Go!' Unable to think of what to say, Astrea silently left the cottage. He paused a little way from the door, listening to Roaring Jack. "'I'm here, asking you to keep me a secret, leastways, till the choosing. It's about a thing I've been thinking of, and it's not what you'd call popular in the village.' Astrea smiled, imagining the expression on Alanna's face as she tried not to wince under the onslaught of sound that the skipper thought was an intimate whisper. It would not have been difficult to stay within earshot, but instead he walked up the path towards the forest. Only a few steps away the village stream rushed around boulders and down little waterfalls. He climbed past the turning to the cemetery, where during the past winter three more graves had been painfully dug in the frozen earth, and four new headstones raised. He turned away from the well-worn path to the burial plots, and scrambled over roots and rocks to where he could take a last look at the village before the trees closed around him. Sitting within the knees of an ancient pine-tree's roots, he leaned against the trunk. Moments later he was joined by Skip. The old dog curled up at his feet and sighed. To the north the fjord mirrored the darkening sky, glittering faintly as puffs of wind ruffled its surface. Eastwards, where the village looked towards the headlands, Astrea could see long, rolling waves rising and falling like the flanks of a huge creature breathing in and out. Farther away lay the notch between the headlands, where waves clashed together, competing to enter the narrow gap. Between the cliff heads, Blue-gray sea stretched to an indistinct horizon where sea and sky merged. Higher still, a few mackerel-back clouds pinked as the last sunlight shone on their undersides. As he watched, darkness first claimed the sea and then climbed steadily into the sky. Astrea looked down on the village. Candles broke the gloom in a few windows. 
Lanterns swayed in the masts of fishing boats where men and boys were still loading food, water, and gear against the next day's departure. Astrea wondered whether he should be down there working on Roaring Jack's boat, Molly. But then he misgave. He had not been officially chosen by Roaring Jack before the whole village. Indeed, his going was not yet even approved by his mother. Astrea tried to understand how she felt about his going to sea, but instead wondered whether she understood what it meant to him. Surely she knew that the village required men to fish the ocean, whatever the risks. However, he knew that Alanna hated to see him leave the calm waters of the fjord when he, like all the other boys, when he, like all the other boys, spent the occasional fine day apprenticed to different boats of the fleet. Those were an introduction to the ocean, on days when the fish were close and the winds gentle. The boys chosen to become men would have to cope with whatever the weather sent for as much as a week's journey to the high islands, where good fishing was almost certain. But what awaited Astrea might be different. Roaring Jack wanted to sail south in a voyage of exploration so outlandish that it had not been attempted for more than a long lifetime. Astrea confided his worries to Skip, as he had done many times before, hardly aware that he spoke out loud. What's he telling Mother? And if he isn't talking about what he said to me, is there something else I should know? Skip thumped the ground with his black tail. And what will the village think, Skip? They're not going to like it if the Molly sails in search of adventure instead of fish. And maybe they're right. Roaring Jack's got something about him that's... Well, it's a bit scary. Again, Skip's tail acknowledged Astrea, but offered no help. Most of all, am I really going? The evening sky darkened Astrea's mood with it. Soon he could barely see the big dog at his feet. He became increasingly sure that he would be stuck on shore, condemned to be the eldest boy not chosen to take a man's place. Then the door of Alana's cottage opened, casting a shaft of yellow light, which a moment later was blocked by Roaring Jack. Then the door closed, and the skipper's lantern bobbed and flickered down the path to his own cottage. Trusting that his feet would find his way in the dark, Astrea ran down to his home. He threw the door open and stood in the doorway for a clenched handful of heartbeats, unsure whether he was about to celebrate his luck or rail against the unfairness of it all. Alana stood beside a table, on which she had placed a kit-bag and a pile of clothing. "'Shut the door, Astrea.' He kicked at the door with his heel, unaware that he had slammed it in the dog's face. His mother moved swiftly towards him. Astrea saw her blue homespun skirt sway and her white hair gleam in the light, just before she pulled him to her, in a short, hard hug. "'We've got some packing to do.' Later that night— Alana rolled up the last item, a newly knitted sweater, and put it into Astrea's kit-bag. He turned his father's enigmatic little book over and over in his hands, as if understanding could flow in through his fingertips. He did not notice when Alana left the firelight, disappeared into her room, and then returned to where he sat at the candlelit table. When he looked up, Alana took the book from him, slid it into a leather wallet, and then put it in the inner pocket of his oiled sailcloth jacket. Then from the pocket of her apron she brought out a knife in its sheath, 
and gave it to Astrea. Your father's. The handle of the knife stuck to the shark-skin sheath for a moment, since it had not been used since his father's death. But when Astrea drew it out, he saw that the blade was still bright and keen. At first glance, it looked new, but when Astrea held it in his hand and examined it closely, he detected faint marks left by a sharpening stone. The blade was only a little longer than his middle finger, and it was blunt at the tip, like all the sailor's knives Astrea had ever seen in the village. But its bone handle and shiny pommel distinguished it from the workaday knives he was used to. Then Alanna pushed back her sleeve to reveal the silvery bracelet with a green stone that she had worn since her wedding. Astrea saw her lips compress as she twisted the shiny metal out of the depression it had made in her arm. She held it near the lantern on the table, turning it so he could see the green stone in its cage-like setting. Then she showed him the inside, where the metal was rubbed smooth and bright. Three words were delicately engraved. Follow your star, Astrea read. Alanna pushed up his shirt-sleeve and clipped the bracelet to his left arm above the elbow. Then they both gasped in amazement as the green stone began to glow. A fine spear of light appeared at its centre, the colour of new grass in sunlight. Astrea pushed a questioning fingertip through the raised wires that guarded the stone and then jerked his hand away as if he'd touched hot metal. The bracelet tingled on his arm. But in a moment both the sudden pain in his finger and the irritation under the bracelet ceased. He thought to take the bracelet off, so that he could examine it more closely. But amazement turned to pride, and he let it be. Instead he cupped his hand over the stone, expecting it to feel warm, but the light that leaked between his fingers was cold. It was almost as bright as that when your father recovered his strength, but then it faded after he gave it to me, and it stayed that way, like it was when they rescued him from the sea, said Alanna. Don't you want to keep it, mother? Astrea's heart was not in his politeness. Alanna shook her head. They both stared until she broke the spell by rolling down his shirt-sleeve to cover the glowing stone. I've often wondered whether I should give it to you, but it's come back to life on your arm. It has to be yours. Astrea was so entranced by the gift she had passed on to him from his father that he hardly felt her fingers touch his hair as she turned away towards her room. Later that night Astrea fell asleep, his arms folded across his chest. A gleam of light escaped between his fingers from the jewel under his right hand. Before sunrise the next morning, as wisps of wind-combed cloud blew across the brightening horizon, Astrea and Alanna descended the steep path to the water's edge. By the time they reached the village wharf, sunlight was greening the tops of trees along the ridge above the village. The village was still in chilly shadow, as were nine boats, rafted in threes, side by side at the end of the wharf. The sturdy craft rose and fell to the waves, jostling together as if eager to be at sea. Early as it was, the open space between bait-houses and the wharf-edge was already filling with people. They stood in family groups, some large, some small, each clustered around a young man with a kit-bag at his feet. The spring morning brought a cool wind off the water, 
so most wore heavy woolen sweaters, and many had added an oiled canvas jacket. The young men all knew how to sail, and most of them had spent a day or more on each of the boats in the fleet, so that the skippers could get the measure of their abilities. Now they awaited the skippers' choices, after which they would be known not only by their names, but also by the name of the boat to which they belonged. The boys, expecting their first voyage as men, wore trousers that stopped well above the tops of their feet, the colour of rich brown earth. Those on most of the men were faded to grey by salt and hard wear. Around the older men's eyes were lines carved by wind and weather. When they looked about them, they did so deliberately and with judgment. The young men scanned about them constantly, now looking at the skipper they hoped might choose them, then at each other, then at the girls of their own age, and, when they thought nobody would notice, at their mothers. The women's dresses were ankle-length, save for younger and bolder girls whose shins and calves caught the young men's eyes. Married women, their hair in coiled plaits around their heads, draped their shoulders with scarves, dyed brown from onion skin, blue from larkspur, and yellow from rose hips. Grandmothers wore their shawls over their heads. The few unmarried young women let their hair fall free, or plaited it into braids, as did Alanna. The young women were conspicuously animated when they were near the unmarried sailors, the first-timers in particular. One or two even cast glances at Estrella, but none came near him. Estrella adopted the wooden expression he kept on his face when dealing with everyone except Alanna and Skarm. "'Hey, Estrella, you got a berth yet?' "'Bet you thought I wouldn't.' Estrella swung around to see that Cam was behind him, his hands deep in the pockets of his frequently repaired jacket, pulling the ample garment around him. He looked up at Estrella through mouse-coloured hair that all but obscured his blue eyes. "'I'm to be aboard the Ronnie B. You could join us. We're all sons without mas, das, wives, or sweethearts. Silver Dawn's skipper now, now that his uncle's no longer with us.' "'Ah, uh, thanks, Cam. I hope—that is— Maybe the Molly will take me, but— Luck, Straya. If you're aboard Jack's boat, you may need it. He disappeared into the crowd, leaving Estrella wondering whether he had heard encouragement or sympathy in Cam's voice. He slid his kit-bag off his shoulder and leaned it against his leg. Skip sat down so close to him that he could feel the warmth of the big dog's body. Alanna had stopped to speak with Roaring Jack's wife, Molly, for whom he had named his boat. Estrella stood alone at the edge of the growing crowd. Resolutely refusing to be embarrassed, he focused his attention on Roaring Jack's boat, hoping he might soon be aboard. "'Think you'll be picked, Blackhead?' Estrella swung around to see Yam, a sneering grin on his freckled face. "'Looking at the Molly, are you? Fat chance, Blackhead!' I's the boy that sails her. Roaring Jack's me father's cousin. We're kin. No strangers aboard the Molly. Estrella's heart sank, and with it his view of the world. He found himself staring at Yan's bare feet. What you looking at, blackhead? Your dirty feet, Yan. And look at ye in your boots. You don't know nothing, do you? There ain't never no boots aboard the Molly, blackhead. 
I've been hardening me feet up for weeks now. Bet yours will be soft like a girl's. Well, at least you'll be ready in your boots for carrying your kit back up to your mother's cottage. My feet are just as ready for sea as yours, Yan. It's just that mine aren't as stinky. Yan took a belligerent step forward, but stopped when Skip growled a warning. Stepping around the dog, Yan shouldered his kit-bag so that the canvas sausage swung towards Estrella's head. Estrella ducked and watched Yan swaggering off through the crowd to where his mother was cautioning his five-year-old brother not to fall off the wharf. Estrella turned towards Alana as she acknowledged a wave from one of the other mothers. As he looked eastwards, Estrella blinked at the masts of the boat, where a flare of light from the first rays of sun poured through the gap in the cliffs. Even though he had the best of the exchange of words, Yan's needling had made him unsure. He was suddenly sure that Roaring Jack would not pick him, and that he would soon be facing the villagers' laughter. Only because leaving would be as conspicuous as running away, he stood his ground, his eyes lowered, planning that as soon as the Molly's crew was named, he would take his kit-bag and climb back up the path, on past his home, into the forest and beyond, to the foothills where the outcasts and misfits tended sheep, only coming down once a year to sell wool to the village women. For a moment he was struck by a memory of dark, expressive eyes looking fixedly at him. He shook his head. "'Right now you'll all attend to Skarm.' Ah, Ian! Roaring Jack's voice boomed around the village, echoed against the cliffs, and returned a second time, barely diminished in volume. Half a dozen seagulls flapped into the air and circled above the villagers. Estrella looked up to see Roaring Jack standing at the wharf edge, a bait tub in one hand. The skipper turned the tub upside down on the ground and waved Skarm towards it. Skarm, the oldest man present, other than a couple of truly ancient grandfathers, stepped onto the upturned tub and held up his good arm for silence. A puff of morning wind flicked a few strands of hair, more salt than pepper, out of its leather band on the back of his neck. He lifted his head to look out at the villagers, and Estrella noticed how the old sailor's close-cropped beard had thinned and whitened around his chin. "'It's been a hard winter,' Skarm began. "'Twasn't just the winter,' said a voice in the crowd. "'And because some of us have faced grief and sorrow, "'we pause to remember the skipper and crew of the Sarah Jane.' "'The silence that followed was broken only by a muffled whimper "'as neighbours embraced three women. "'The Sarah Jane had been lost with all hands "'in the first of the past winter's easterlies.' But it was not the worst ever, by a hard, long, windward tack, continued Skarm, after a pause. The village is still here. The women's gardens are growing. The fleet will set sail, and luck being with us, return with full holds. Aye, confirmed several voices. Last night the skippers met to choose their crews, as ye all know. And it took em a while, I can tell you. Eight young men to choose from, and each one of them ready for the sea. It doesn't happen every year. Last year, twas only one youngster. Year before, none. 
and the year before that as well. But there must have been something in the air back when all these boys breathed their first. It was a long, hard winter, shouted a voice from the back of the crowd. Several men guffawed, and some women giggled. It was that, said Skarm, regaining control. But whatever its cause, the village was blessed with a mess of boys who today are becoming men. Now the skippers will make their choices known. Skarm stood down from the bait-tub, and almost everyone moved forward a pace or two. Well-wishers jostled the young men, clapping them on a shoulder or giving them an affectionate push. One mother clung to her only son's arm. Astraea took some bitter satisfaction that although Yan held Tina by the hand, she stood aside from him, unlike the girls who pressed close and looked up into the faces of their young men. Roaring Jack stepped onto the bait-tub and cleared his throat. "'I'm after telling you that I'm shipping out with a new crew and a fresh purpose,' he began. "'Most of the skippers are content with their luck to the north, or in and around the high islands, but I'm thinking of new fishing grounds to the south.' A murmur of conversation followed his announcement. Astrea overheard two men muttering behind him. One voice said, "'Lots of sound, not too much sense.' to which the other replied, "'There's times he ain't got both oars in the water.' Astraea stole a glance around him, and saw two of the village's skippers standing side by side. One of them had a hand hiding his mouth, and the other was nodding. Astraea was aghast. He'd never thought that skippers might talk behind each other's backs. Were they jealous of Roaring Jack's luck at finding more fish than most? Or was there something else he did not know? He looked to see if Alanna had heard, but she was intent on what was happening on the wharf. Anticipation drove the exchange out of Astraea's mind. He stood on tiptoe to see better. First of all, me crew from before times. Ready and come forth. A huge man in his twenties pushed his way through the crowd and took Roaring Jack's hand. Despite the extra height of the bait tub, the skipper's eyes were on a level with Red Ian's as they clasped hands. Astraea compared the two men's red hair, the skipper's curly and carrot-red, and his crewman's bright as polished copper. "'Right, Jack!' shouted a voice from the crowd. "'There's your first two choices in one man!' "'Next! Skarm! Uh, in!' Voices asked questions as Skarm and Yan moved forward for the handshake of agreement. Astraea heard the words old and crippled, muttered more than once by people around him. And now for the new. I choose my kinsman, Yan. Yes! Yan shouted, both fists punching air above his head. As the first young man to be chosen, Yan was subjected to more or less friendly shoves and nudges from those who stood near. Discussions and congratulations mingled as the crowd shifted in anticipation for the next skipper's choice. "'And last I choose Alanna's boy, Straya!' Roaring Jack's voice blasted through the murmurs and left silence behind. Astraea's eyes grew very wide, and he stood unmoving, as Alanna embraced him and kissed his cheek. He searched for words, but could find none for her. "'Stay, Skip!' He fondled the big dog's head, before picking up his kit-bag and walking towards the boats. 
The crowd parted, but no one spoke directly to him, and when he reached the bait-bucket only the tapping of halyards against the masts broke the quiet as the morning wind swayed the boats. "'Welcome aboard the Molly, lad,' said Roaring Jack, in an almost conversational tone, as he stepped off the tub and clasped Astrea's hand. "'Take this and stow it with your kit.' He gave Astrea a square leather satchel as long as a man's forearm and at least two handspans thick. When he took it, Astrea discovered that it was lighter than might have been expected for its size. "'Birchmark!' Roaring Jack tried to whisper, though most of the crowd heard him. "'And even some paper. Skarm put it together last night, for your markings. Now get aboard!' On both sides of Roaring Jack and his crew, the other skippers' faces were dour. They all knew their fellow skippers' choices, and had heard the night before that the Molly was not sailing with the rest of the fleet. Most of them were uncomfortable with the plan, and some were openly set against it. However, they knew that there was no point in arguing with Roaring Jack, since they could no more change his mind than they could shout him down. The women exchanged glances, but remained silent in anticipation of gossip later. The big-voiced man led his crew to the boats, where all except Yan stepped out of their boots and climbed barefoot, boots in hand, onto the first, across to the second, and onto the molly, which lay outboard, ready to be first to leave. "'You take the main halyards, Red. Boys, get the jib up and drawing. Skarm, let go fore and aft.' Roaring Jack stood by the tiller as his crew went to work and in moments the squeak of blocks, the flap of a sail, and the slap of bare feet on the deck, together with the low chuckle of water under the molly's bow, all masked the exclamations, arguments, and discussions that were taking place ashore, delaying the next skipper's announcement of his crew. So it was that the molly set sail an hour ahead of the fleet, and none of her crew heard the nine days' worth of village gossip that they left behind. You have been listening to the Astrea Trilogy, Book One, The Voyage South, written and read by Seymour Hamilton. All three books are available in electronic and paper formats from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Chapters. Visit astreatrilogy.com for more about Astrea's world. This audio version is licensed under the United States Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0.